From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm your host. It was a few days after the overturn of Roe v. Wade when a doctor in Louisiana prescribed a medication to make the insertion of an IUD, a form of birth control, less painful for a patient. The medication has several uses. One of them is to act as the second part of a two-drug protocol used to terminate a pregnancy. The pharmacy called the prescribing physician to ask if the prescription was for an abortion. When she told them it was for an IUD insertion, the pharmacist still refused to give out the medication, leaving the patient without medicine for her procedure. This is one of the ways that Roe's overturn has already impacted access to other kinds of reproductive care. We worry this could not only continue, but get worse. Today, we are going to dig into the new landscape of reproductive health care in a post-Roe world by talking with two physicians who have dedicated their life to helping people who can get pregnant navigate their vast pool of healthcare needs. From deciding how to prevent pregnancy and how to manage harmful periods to how to recover from a miscarriage or how to deal with infertility. These doctors know better than most, and certainly they know better than the Supreme Court, that the full spectrum of reproductive care is of vital importance to the lives of millions of Americans. Joining us today are Dr. Colleen Denny, the medical director of the Women's Health Services at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, and an assistant clinical professor at the NYU School of Medicine, who provides OBGYN care that includes abortion, and Dr. Lucky Sikan, a double board certified OBGYN and reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist at RMA of New York, a fertility clinic. She is an assistant clinical professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Dr. Denny, Dr. Sikan, welcome to At Liberty. Thanks so much. So I want to start with how you both are feeling. Uh, you're both doctors uh, in reproductive health care. The post-world world has changed already in just a few short weeks the kind of medicine that you practice or the environment that you're practicing in. And I know that you're ba both based in New York, um, but has the way you view your work changed? And if so, how? We can start with Dr. Denny. Well, I think generally my colleagues here in New York, we're all feeling pretty disheartened. This is, we knew it was coming, but it's deeply depressing. Um, and being an abortion provider in New York, we're very protected here. New York State has a lot of uh, laws that protect abortion access and abortion care for New Yorkers, regardless of what's happening at the federal level. But what we really see and what we worry about are people who are traveling for abortion care now. Um, you know, abortion, even when it was supposedly legal in all states, was already restricted in many ways. And even in like 2019, the last year we have data about 10% of people getting abortion care in New York were already traveling. They were already coming from other states. And so we only expect that to increase. And that adds all these, these complications into providing safe abortion care. We have to make sure that these travelers have the right follow-up, that after they go home, they know who to contact if they have any complications. We have to worry about out-of-state insurance coverage, all these extra 
twists and turns that we didn't have to deal with for New Yorkers. We're sort of wondering how we can best facilitate this for people who are having to to travel for abortion care now. And Dr. Sikan, has it changed the kinds of conversations that you are having with patients? Definitely. I mean, there is a lot of concern across the board and there's a lot of confusion uh, because what I do is I help build families. I help people preserve their fertility for the future. And it's a difficult issue because IVF has only really been around for the last 40 years. And it came about in a post-Roe v. Wade era, which was obviously, you know, the early 70s. So it's kind of uncharted territory. And I think a lot of people who've trained as OBGYNs or as subspecialists like myself, a lot of us did our training in an era where we kind of took this for granted. It's just, you know, it was a given. And these are questions that are now being raised that we've never had to contemplate. There really isn't specific guidance or information at this time about what the exact impacts will be of the abortion bans on the type of medicine that I practice. But I think a lot of time people are separating the two out, but they they have a common thread. And what I do and what abortion providers do, it's all part of the same spectrum. It's reproductive choice. I think either way, it's about having choice. And, you know, now healthcare providers all across the country are facing uncertain legal liability, which is a new consideration in how they would practice care. I know that you are both in New York and feel safe at the moment, but have either of you felt this uncertainty yourselves? And do you have other friends in places that may not have the same kind of access that we do in the city who are now feeling this kind of legal precarity? From my perspective, again, New York is a pretty protected area, but certainly I'm hearing from colleagues and just anecdotally across the country that this is definitely happening. Um, you know, for people who need pregnancy-related care, especially like an early pregnancy, when we tend to see more, you know, miscarriages happen in early pregnancy, uh, pregnancies that just don't don't progress normally. And at the physician level, there's suddenly so much confusion about what does the ban include, what's legal, what's not legal anymore. And it, it totally is overwhelming medical judgment, right? Nobody wants, you're suddenly in the, uh, the position of thinking about providing what you know to be the appropriate level of care and then wondering like, actually, no, am I now going to get thrown in jail for this? Uh, which sounds like it's exaggerating, but it's really not, right? The drugs the, the drugs we use for medically managing a miscarriage are exactly the same drugs that we use for medication abortion. Same dosage, everything. Uh, the same procedure that we use for a first trimester abortion is the procedure we would use to help someone who's had an early miscarriage. Um, ectopic pregnancies, which have no ability to become a, a viable pregnancy, no ability to turn into a baby. Uh, we're hearing stories of people just watching those pregnancies instead of operating on them immediately, like the life-threatening emergencies they are. It's, it's really concerning. Like people, people will get bad care for this if they're not already getting it. People will die from this. So I, I'm also in New York and similarly feel very protected for now, but I've learned to not take anything for granted. And obviously I think we need to be proactive and not complacent in the past year uh, Republican legislators in at least 10 states have proposed bills that would assign legal personhood to frozen embryos, and none of them have fortunately passed yet. Um, and most anti-abortion groups have said that IVF and 
embryo personhood is not their direct target, but in states with you know, an abortion ban. Um, I've talked to a lot of people that practice reproductive medicine and no one's giving them directives and they're just not clear on what's in the pipeline. Are they going to be, um, you know, prosecuted if they help patients discard embryos that they no longer want because they're done building their family? Um, Could clinics be liable if, you know, they're discarding embryos that are deemed abnormal based on genetic testing results? And the number one thing is, you know, limitations on how we practice medicine, like saying a fertilized egg is conception or a person is highly problematic because the entire purpose of IVF is to help overcome reproductive inefficiency, which requires the fertilization of multiple eggs because so many of those eggs are not destined to become a pregnancy. So a lot of the things that are being proposed in these states with abortion bans, um, where people are trying to assign personhood um, to embryos, um, are going to make it harder to access care, going to make it less easy to afford the ability to undergo these treatments, which are required by a lot of people to build their family. I want to get into personhood and the legal ramifications of that definition um, and the healthcare ramifications of that definition. But before that, I think what we have learned in the last few weeks, you know, last few months perhaps, is that a lot of people don't actually understand some pretty basic things about the reproductive system. And I think that these are important things in order to inform the conversation about things like legal personhood, about the ways in which different kinds of birth control might be impacted by these laws. So bear with me. I know that this is very basic to you all, but I was wondering if we could just run some terms by you so that we're all on the same page. So First off, what is fertilization? So fertilization refers to an egg and a sperm coming together. And it's not just as simple as them being in the right place at the right time, but there is a complex set of biologic reactions that have to take place. And even in the best of conditions where, you know, in the IVF laboratory, sometimes to overcome different forms of infertility, we'll inject one sperm directly into each egg. And even in that type of scenario, we see about 70 to 80% of eggs actually capable of fertilization successfully. Roughly only 50 to 60% of fertilized eggs will actually turn into an embryo. And even at that stage, many of those embryos are abnormal or don't have any sort of reproductive competence or ability to turn into a live birth. What is implantation? So implantation is when that embryo has arrived At the uterine cavity, and it's approximately five to seven days after fertilization, it will attach to the wall of the uterus and release digestive enzymes and basically burrow its way into the lining of the uterus. So even when we do embryo transfers, which is a part of IVF, after the embryos are created in the lab, maybe they're frozen, maybe they've undergone genetic testing, they can be utilized and you know, we put them basically at the top of the uterus and hope for the best. And a lot of embryos don't implant, um, even if they're genetically tested and, and, you know, we've evaluated them in every way that we possibly can, implantation rates are not 100%. So that's why it's imperative for what I do, um, you know, to be trying to maximize reproductive efficiency 
by getting as many embryos as possible. That's the whole point of IVF. And Dr. Denny, what about the definition of an abortion? Generally, we define, or the way that we use abortion when we're talking to patients and uh, we sort of think is appropriate, is the is purposely ending a pregnancy. Um, generally, and I think that the caveat to that that I also add is it's obviously not in terms of like an induction of labor, right? That's not an abortion. That's a term delivery. Um, but purposely ending a pregnancy either through surgery or medication. And what is the definition of a miscarriage? A miscarriage is actually not a medical term, but we it's a common enough phrase that we use it with patients, but it means that for whatever reason, a pregnancy has failed. Um, so most commonly, that's in the first trimester, less than 10 weeks. Those are almost always associated with some genetic abnormality that means the pregnancy just doesn't have the right genetic information to grow past a certain stage before it just fails. Um, People do use the phrase miscarriage to mean a pregnancy failure later in pregnancy, but that is uncommon past the first trimester, to be honest. And what about two other words that I think a lot of people know, but just to be safe, ovulation and menstruation? I'll take ovulation. Uh, so ovulation is the release of an egg from the ovary. And if you're getting a regular period every month, that means you are ovulating every month. That's the telltale sign. Um, you have a bunch of eggs that come to the surface of the ovary every cycle, but only one of them typically is selected to actually grow and mature and be ovulated. And so that's one chance each cycle that you have to try to get pregnant. And menstruation? Well, basically menstruation is shedding of your uterine lining and it typically happens in response to the withdrawal of progesterone. So every time you ovulate, your ovaries start to produce progesterone. And if that ovulated egg doesn't actually result in a pregnancy, eventually the progesterone levels start to drop and your lining breaks down and you get a period. Okay. Thank you both so much for those terms. So Dr. Sikhan, you talked about the problematic language of life beginning at fertilization. And you talked about the ways in which that this can potentially prohibit the way you practice in vitro fertilization. Why else is this language so troublesome from a perspective of kind of the vast array of reproductive healthcare options? Because I think a lot of people lack understanding of the biology. All the things that I just ran through hopefully have made it really clear that human reproduction is so inefficient. From any given ovulation, in the best of conditions, we say at most you have about a 15 to 20% chance of getting pregnant. If you assign legal personhood to a fertilized egg that has a ways to go before it could even implant, um, you know, people have extended that to say, okay, let's attack emergency contraception like plan B. Plan B works primarily by delaying ovulation and throwing off the timing so that it doesn't even become a fertilized egg that can turn into a pregnancy. But it also changes the uterine environment to also, as a backstop, prevent implantation, um, making the environment less conducive to implantation. And, you know, anti-choice advocates have attacked Plan B um, with misinformation campaigns on social media, but also with that one you know, line in the mechanism of action and saying, well, therefore, because we regard a fertilized egg as a person, if you're preventing that fertilized egg from implanting, that 
in effect, is an abortion, which it's not. So I think it's problematic well beyond my scope of work. And, you know, Dr. Denny can obviously uh, weigh in here. If you make an embryo or a fertilized egg into a person, then that sort of sets up an easy train of legislature that it can criminalize any behavior in pregnancy. That is not a big leap to say that that potentially harms this quote-unquote person. That's assault, right, when you harm another person. So, you know, right now, most of the bans are not trying to criminalize the pregnant person themselves who is seeking abortion care, but there are certainly attempts out there um, to really put these these pregnant people at to charge them as if they were harming a person for behavior that they have uh, during their pregnancy. And that that's really concerning in a much bigger scheme. Yeah. And to add to, to that point, I think, you know, we've seen a lot of reports over Twitter and other forms of social media about folks who uh, manage their chronic conditions using a drug called methotrexate, which is often used in rheumatoid arthritis and other autoimmune conditions, being taken off of those medications, uh, medications that they rely on for their livelihoods and their ability to, you know, manage their their pain and their illness. And and so, you know, I it's these conversations have ripple effects far beyond even reproductive health care, uh, I want to turn to access to birth control briefly. I've seen on TikTok that people are having problems in Oklahoma, in Tennessee, accessing birth control, accessing Nexplanon or IUDs, other kinds of implants. Why would birth control be a part of this, this pie or pool? I think the short answer is if you know enough about reproductive health care and you understand what these what different forms of birth control do, you know that it's not, right? Forms of birth control are not abortifacients. Uh, they're not abortion medicines. They're not abortion procedures. Nexplanon, birth control pills, the shot, IUDs, none of those have any effect really on a, their main effect is not on a fertilized egg at all. As Dr. Sikhan said, they either block ovulation or they block sperm from even meeting the egg. They all work in some other way. Um, but there's so much confusion uh, about what the ban actually is and, you know, also confusion with the complete absence of any kind of medical uh, medical language in a lot of these bans that people are kind of either from good intentions, just confused about what they can do, or from people who always wanted to restrict birth control access anyway, are taking opportunities to do this now. Um, and we have, you know, there's some concern that the Supreme Court will set us up for restricting birth control access as well as restricting abortion care access. But I think this is kind of a flavor of what can happen when no one really understands what the, the edges of this ban actually represent, and also what you can do in sort of a confused um, in confused environment that doesn't really understand the borders between these different medicines, these different uh, medications and uh, procedures. I think all of this conversation is about the ability to make that choice to have a family when you see fit and make that choice to have one when you want one in the way that you want one. Justice Clarence Thomas, in his opinion, concurring opinion, noted Griswold v. Connecticut, which is the Supreme Court case that granted uh, access to contraceptives. So the idea, the legal precedent has really been established to also try and uh, attack other 
kinds of uh, civil rights and civil liberties that we are obviously very concerned about at the ACLU. Now that we've talked about these abortion bans and how they impact things like birth control, I want to talk about how they affect, and we've we've touched on it, um, IVF, uh, family building. I think part of the concern here is that for certain kinds of families, people in the LGBTQ community, people who have disabilities, that IVF is actually a really important piece of building the family that they would like to see. And that is also part of the lived experience of equality. Uh, And so I I would love to hear from you, Dr. Sikhan, how this impacts the wide array of people who walk through your office. Because we know that abortion care and uh, and birth control impact a, a large swath of people. But I think people might not realize how many people are impacted by a threat to IVF. Yeah, I think that's so true. I think unless you know someone or you yourself has had infertility or required the help of a fertility doctor to build your family, most people are largely unaware of what it takes. Um, but it is widespread. You know, it's been around for 40 years, IVF has, and there's at least over 1 million children born from IVF in this country, over 8 million born worldwide. And there's so many reasons why one may need IVF. You know, it could be delayed age of having your first child and the effects on egg quality and that making reproduction even less efficient and needing the help to overcome that inefficiency. Um, As you mentioned, members of the LGBTQ plus community will often require the help of a fertility doctor, the guidance of a fertility doctor um, to use donor sperm, donor egg, to use a gestational carrier, what most people call a surrogate, um, because they don't have all of what it takes from a biological standpoint to just do it on their own as a heterosexual couple might. Um, And so in places where there are abortion bans that trickle down to start restricting how providers can practice IVF, doctors are going to shy away eventually from practicing in these areas where they're constantly being challenged or there's no clear protective language to guarantee that they're not going to one day be, you know, criminally held responsible for doing, you know, their best to take care of patients and and practicing their specialty. So I think um, that's going to be a huge consequence that affects all members of our community. I think there's medical, so many medical reasons why people need IVF to conceive. Men with spinal cord injuries need their sperm to be extracted to create embryos Um, You know, people that have undergone chemotherapy or radiation and have had to preserve sperm or their eggs or made embryos um, to preserve their fertility before undergoing treatment that irreversibly impacts their fertility. The list goes on. Fertility is a disease. And I think that's the overarching thing is that people don't recognize it as a disease. And that's why we lack so much insurance coverage in most of the country Um, If it was recognized as an actual disease, just like cancer or anything else, I think we'd have better access to care. Dr. Denny, I I wonder, you know, from your perspective, you're an abortion provider. You also, you know, run 
women's health services at a, a major New York City hospital. The abortion bans in and of themselves are are horrific, right? Forcing people to carry their pregnancies to term, that's bad enough. But it feels that also this, what I think a lot of people don't realize is that it creates this slippery slope where all of these other pieces of reproductive health care are getting pulled in. Why is this so concerning to uh, really empowering and caring for your patients? Well, I think one of the primary issues with the, the recent SCOTUS decision is just that it, it means that your access to safe evidence-based care is suddenly dependent on where you live. And that's weird, right? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, it's not, doesn't happen to any other part of medicine. It's what your state legislature thinks will get them reelected next time they're up for election, right? And that's not okay that half of the patient, half of the people who can become pregnant in the United States are suddenly not going to have access to abortion care because of those decisions at that level. This is why we need federal protection for this kind of extremely common, occasionally life-saving care, right? Like, uh, 25% of people by the time they're 45 years old, 25% of women, um, are going to have an abortion. It's very, very common. We're going to start to see more people who are trying to manage this at home with pills they received from someone who's not a medical professional. Um, we're worried about that. I worry a lot about my patients. I work at a big public hospital, and I have many colleagues who also work at um, public hospitals that see a lot of patients who are uninsured or underinsured, uh, people who don't have as many resources, people who struggle with transportation and childcare. And we already know that that patient population is the most, those are the most likely to have unintended pregnancies. So they're the most likely to need abortion care. And this makes it even, makes even more barriers for those patients to receive safe care. Um, and then honestly, I worry a bit about the specific population of people who need abortion care later in pregnancy, right? 90% of patients who need abortions have them in the first trimester. And the 10% who are later than about 12 weeks or so, they're, they're an unusual population. Uh, these are people who have desired pregnancies, but suddenly we find out on the ultrasound that this fetus has a lot of anomalies. Or teenagers are much more likely to have a later uh, gestational age at the time of their abortion because they're teenagers. They don't have access to care or money or transportation or any of those things. And I think that even if uh, state-level abortion bans aren't outright bans, bans that prevent abortion care in uh, past the first trimester are going to disproportionately affect these, these groups that we should be reaching out to and trying to take extra special care of because the healthcare system is already not serving them well. There's state-level competitions happening right now that we think it's only going to be 26 states, but we have to make sure it's not suddenly 30 states that ban abortion or 35. We, we are actively backsliding um, to the 1970s and before, and I think that's cause for alarm uh, on many fronts. And we've talked a little bit about the criminalization uh, piece throughout this conversation. We actually currently have in 38 states laws that make it a crime to harm a fetus already. According to the Center for Public Integrity, legal experts say that these laws were originally intended to stop violence against pregnant people, which, you know, and now they're oftentimes being used to criminalize pregnant people, whether that's for miscarriages, stillbirths, self-induced abortions. This happened before 
Roe v. Wade was overturned. Um, and arguably, it's only going to get worse from here. This kind of broad uncertainty over who is going to be criminalized and for what, I think, underpins so much of what this new uh, era of reproductive health care will be like. Giving personhood or the rights of a person to a fetus or an embryo is such is such an important step in so many other potentially really concerning legislation. We think about things like chemotherapy or methotrexate for rheumatoid arthritis. Those are known drugs with um, they can cause birth defects. But we're not thinking about things like if you ah we you know caffeine decrease increases your miscarriage rate. If you have three cups of coffee during your early pregnancy and you have a miscarriage. If you miss your prenatal appointments, is that child abuse? And it sounds like exaggeration, but it's just not a hard path to see, right? If you make that a person and that person has the same rights as any other person in our world, then that becomes assault or homicide. And that really, you know, this is not quite a year, but nine months of someone's behavior or, you know, if before they can potentially become pregnant, it's I don't I don't like saying these things because I think it can make us seem like we're exaggerating. Like the current situation is already bad, but it has the potential to become much worse, especially if people continue to chip away at reproductive health rights at the legislation, as they've successfully done over the last decade. We're going to see patients, and particularly people who are already marginalized and already criminalized by our system, black and brown folks, formerly incarcerated folks, these people will be will arguably put themselves at more risk in either trying to prevent a pregnancy or trying to plan a pregnancy and not seek that kind of care due to the fear that criminalization could could happen for them. I think it's really important to give people hope in what feels like a really strenuous and hopeless time. So I guess my my question to both of you as a, as a wrap up is, what keeps you all going and, and what is getting you through these darker moments where you're playing out the scenarios that are already real in other states that could be real in your experience and the experience of your patients. Yeah. What, what, what allows you to kind of continue on? I can go first. Um, I, I think it's the patients, right? That's the core of why we're doing what we, we do. And, you know, that's why I became a doctor was to care for people. And so I definitely took a few days to mourn and be upset after the SCOTUS decision came out. Um, but now I think I'm, I'm spurned into action. I'm spurred into action. I, I want to be an advocate. I think education is so important, especially in the corners of reproductive medicine that people aren't thinking about um, because it's not a problem for them. I think we have to educate the masses. We need to be, um, you know, mobilizing resources and directing funds to help get around these issues and help people if they need to travel out of state with room and board and access. Um, and then we need to vote so that we can try to roll back, um, you know, or, or circumvent the backslide that is currently happening. I think a lot of what my my hope comes from is my role as 
in academic medicine. So I'm a, I'm a clinical educator. I'm with trainees almost all the time in my day-to-day practice, uh, both medical students, um, resident physicians, uh, mid-level providers like nurse practitioners and PAs. And I think seeing seeing their enthusiasm and dedication to reproductive health care is always really edifying and gives me hope. Um, and then also the general, this, the academic medical setting makes me realize how different things are than they were 50 years ago. So there's this feeling that we're just going back to Roe uh, before Roe. Um, but we're not really, because a lot of things have happened in the last 50 years in reproductive health care, thanks to research and academic medicine that make reproductive health care much better than it was in the 1970s, right? At the very basics, like our birth control is much better. It's more effective. It has fewer side effects. It's more available. We know more about the safety of it. All those things are true. Um, we now live in a world where we have medication abortion, which has only come on the market really in its current form in about 2000. And medication abortion is incredibly effective and incredibly safe and it's just two pills that you take by mouth um and i think that is a tool we did not have in the 1970s um in addition to of course the internet which really helps people get good information and talk to people across state lines and uh, even the idea that you can call you're in texas you can call new york for free right that's actually something we take for granted now but that is different than it was in the 1970s so i don't think it's going to be the same i think we have these really important tools thanks to the last 50 years of important medical research that are going to make this a different a different kind of fight. It's still going to be a fight. It's still a big uh, backslide. But I think that we have good people coming out of our, our training facilities and we have a lot of good tools for them to use. And a lot of good tools for, for patients to use. I think uh, the idea that we can all share our experiences on social media is so helpful because People are actually witnessing the real life impacts of of these bans on on people's access. So, I uh, just want to thank both of you for joining. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedules uh, to to come and and share your expertise with us. Thank you for lending this platform to this conversation. It's so important, and I really appreciate being here. Thanks also to the ACLU. So much good work. We try. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. We have a long fight ahead of us, but the ACLU was made for moments like this. To donate to support our fight against the attack on reproductive autonomy and all the attacks that follow, please visit aclu.org slash keepfighting. That's aclu.org slash keepfighting. To get involved in our people power effort to protect abortion access, please visit aclu.org slash abortion activist. That's aclu.org slash abortion activist. These links will be in the description box as well. Thank you so much for stepping up and working together with us. Until next week, stay strong.